America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hey, David. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm I'm well. A little hot out there, but uh, doing very well in the sunny south. So today's show was really prompted by some media attention that's being applied to a recording artist who has been very open about her addiction and also about her struggles with recovery. And uh, so I thought since it is in the news, we can use her story as a jumping off point to be able to highlight some of the issues related to addiction, some of the issues um, that highlight the struggles that people have, and talk a little bit about uh, some solutions. So this week in the news, there was a lot of information about... Um, uh, Demi Lovato, um, and I can't guarantee that I'm saying that name correctly either. Um, um, she is is part of a, a changing face in the addiction world, in the recovery world, in the sense that she's been very, very open throughout her um, her experience with the with her struggles with the recovery process and and with her addiction. Um, she's she's stepped away from the anonymous idea from the um, this is my problem that I have to go take care of all by myself and I'll come back she's she's as much as possible tried to take the shame out of having the disease Um, and so she's been very open throughout her recovery process and now having had a relapse um, owning the relapse She's in the very beginnings of coming back from that relapse, but she's she's written a letter to her fans and to the public specifically about the the relapse and um, and continues to be very open with it. There's a lot of controversy just around that part. Yes, you know, so, so let's some talk time about talking that about that because you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all those programs started with the idea that. People need a safe place to be able to go and say, I am an alcoholic. Right. I have a problem. I have a problem. And they need, they, you know, there was a, a real fear that, you know, if they were saying, I am an alcoholic, and it became public knowledge, they would not get insurance, they would not get medical coverage, they would not get jobs, that it would have lasting impacts that would keep them from being able to, to really recover because... They would feel like they have this secret they have to keep. Right. And these additional consequences that may be above and beyond whatever consequences um, their disease directly caused for them. So if somebody finding out that at your employment, you know, your place of employment that you have the disease of addiction, or you're trying to get a life insurance policy, or you're trying to get um, other kinds of medical care or life insurance, health insurance that there'd be an even bigger, the ripple effect would be even bigger. So the idea, we are going to just use our first names. If there's a multitude of people with your same first name, then some variation of your name or... um, First first name, last initial. First name, last initial. And that that's all people in the group would would know about. And I, I think that 
in addition to keeping what's private private, I think the other way in which that um, that level of confidentiality is really important is that you don't know if you're a firefighter or a doctor or someone who works in construction. Those things don't matter. What mm-hmm. kind of car you drive, what's your last name, what's your bank account, because we're all one people who have uh, this common disease, and that's the important thing, not whatever else we bring to the table. And that coming together as a group, we have the ability to recover from this and, and trying to recover from this disease all by yourself has time and again proven to be fruitless. Um, it's so much for them that it's <coughs> codified it into their traditions. Right. You know, they, they say the spiritual foundation of the program is anonymity. Um, they say ever reminding us to place principles before personalities, to be anonymous at the level of press, radio, and film. So actively saying not to be advertising that you're, <coughs> well, they're specifically saying not advertising that you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous or, or one of the other anonymous programs. Because of the idea that if you should relapse and if you should fall back get full-fledged into the illness, that that won't show as as a sign that the program is not working um, and leave other people to just not even try. This this Demi's taken it from a different approach though, and, and her generation and, and a little bit in the generation mm-hmm. before that have have really been kind of bursting out of the closet, as you will, and, and and saying, hey, you know, this is a problem that many many people have all over the world, and it shouldn't be a, a shame or a secret, and we should feel comfortable being able to get the help we need. Um, and, and that part, you absolutely have to applaud. Absolutely. I think that's a very important um, statement to make, and I think that is hopefully very supportive to people who are in recovery or who are considering recovery, and to put um, a name and a face with what the disease looks like and what recovery can look like. A few years ago, there was an organization that started up called the Faces and Voices of Recovery. And this is another group of people that have come together and said, we haven't had an advocacy group. We don't have the ability, when we are silent, to make an impact on legislation, on health care, on access to um, services, and also to to decrease the shame associated with this disease. So this group has come together and people are joining it, uh, some of whom may or may not be members of a 12-step program, but they're actively stating their name, showing their face, and telling their story, uh, again, as a way to inspire others to get help, encourage those who are struggling to continue on, and to decrease the stigma, because let's face it, I think most people who don't work in our world or have a family member who is um, in recovery, the idea of what someone who has the disease of addiction looks like is someone living in the gutter or somebody who's homeless, when in reality, 70% of people who have the disease of addiction actually are full-time employees. Uh, It's not who you think. Yeah, it is just not... You look across the room and you just don't know if that person has addiction or not. And Herc's story is actually so incredibly common. 
um, she began uh, using chemicals in her teen years. She had her first treatment experience at 18. Um, so before she had ever had a legal drink, before she had ever had uh, a legal vote, she was having to deal with a life-changing mm-hmm. diagnosis and, and illness and getting into recovery. And she struggled with getting into recovery at that point. She used um, recovery support, recovery coaches, and, uh, and those things. And she got a, a pretty solid grip on it. She had six years of recovery before um, before this slip, this relapse. Um and so at 28, she's having to, to really stop and look at, I, I still have this disease. It's not something that goes away just because you have a lot of clean time. And I'm still a young person trying to figure out how to live life. Um, so that's it's such a common story that, that in our world we meet all the time. And, and the, the reality that there's going to be relapses when you're coming to terms with being an adult and dealing with Correct. life and dealing with relationships that that's that's main re- main cause of relapse is managing stress and and that's a, such a stressful time in a person's life right even if you're not a superstar artist traveling performer to add all that on top <laughs> of it all of that where the whole world is watching you and they're waiting on every um, Twitter release to see what your current status is and this is one of the difficult things for people who are um, in the entertainment business or in politics or other high profile people that when they are um, they're constantly being watched. They're constantly being photographed. They're constantly being written about. And so it's hard enough, as you say, to just get through these transitions in life that she's going through. And then when you put on top of that, that here she is also managing this career where her every movement what she's wearing today and where she picked up her Starbucks is being broadcast to whomever is interested and taking a look. That's a really uh, difficult place and often folks who are high profile have a hard time dealing with this additional pressure particularly in early stages of recovery or during transition times. One of the um, the things that really strikes me as a, a, a difficult acceptance piece anyway is the need for total abstinence Um, because people will enter treatment especially when they're that age Mm -hmm. they enter treatment because of a particular drug usually um, opiates or cocaine or something Um, and and so they really and even even if they're entering it for alcohol they're having to come to terms with i have to tell doctors i have to tell people that that i'm an addict because their brain is going to have addictive an addictive reaction to any chemicals that are releasing dopamine um and and so just being coming forth with that information and accepting total absence i think is is really difficult but as you say in this world where you know they're having to be a public face and they're in they're doing press releases and they're doing all of these public they play probably that <laughs> public um, performances, performances mm-hmm. meet and greets, all these things where everybody else is drinking, the the reality that they have got to still have a Coca-Cola with nothing mm-hmm. else in it or have water with nothing else in it and be happy with that is a, an adjustment. And 
it is not only readily available, but people are encouraging them and trying to provide them with drugs and alcohol or other substances to try and curry their favor or make them feel less nervous or help them sleep or help them be awake when they've flown across the ocean over to Europe to do a performance and now they're having jet lag. So there's all of these kinds of opportunities for them that regular everyday people don't necessarily have. And that is um, that is a very complicated and and there're always new medications coming out and there's still when a medication comes out a big push to give this a try and there's always a message that the medication is not addictive you know so your your point about flying back and forth across the country or across the globe and having to perform that next night mm-hmm. the the reality that Adderall is being pushed at them or other amphetamines are being pushed at them and something to help them sleep is being pushed at them. Um, and we're here saying you have to be totally abstinent. Right. It's definitely a difficult struggle. And when medications like Ambien and Xanax came out, the big marketing scheme behind them was these are not addictive substances. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about addiction, relapse, and redemption. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and I are talking about addiction, um, the life uh, line of addiction in terms of what's the natural progression and using uh, an example of uh, Demi Lovato, who has been very open about her Recovery, her struggles uh, with getting sober, and then most recently with her relapse. So she had a very interesting way of letting her fans and family and associates know that she was struggling again uh, by the the song that she released back in June. She released a new single called "Sober." And which she told her story of, of having relapsed and in the song she apologized to her her family and her fans that she that she lost as a result of relapsing. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you would make that announcement in that that form. Mm-hmm. And that format. Um, it's a very um, interesting song and when I first heard the title I thought, well, this is a song about recovery, which it is, but I didn't think of it initially when I just saw the title that this was going to be an announcement of I'm not sober anymore. And uh, so, yes, a very interesting way of sharing that with people, but also with being open and honest and that's one of the tenets of recovery is that you need to be open and honest about how you're feeling what's going on take responsibility for your actions which but she did very she did <laughs> in a very and what's, beautiful what's way. interesting in in one of the articles that I'd read about it was really contrasting today her coming out with that song as opposed to a, a number of years ago when Amy Winehouse came out with her song, The, the Rehab, right? Um, where they tried to make me go to rehab, rehab. and I said, no, no, no. Um, in the midst of this one, she is expressing the feelings mm-hmm. that come with no longer being in recovery, um, and, and she's expressing the feelings of how it doesn't feel sober to not be sober when you're when everyone else thinks you're sober you know that that we often talk about it as just the misery there's there's nothing more miserable than a head full of recovery and a belly full of alcohol (laughs) you know that that kind of um awareness that you're you're back into an illness right so following this release of this song back in June, she was hospitalized having an unspecified overdose. Uh, there was some speculation as to whether or not this was an overdose related to opioids. Um, some early reports on TMZ and other media outlets indicated that it was heroin. Her family has uh, since said there are some things in that early release that were not correct and asked for privacy around that. So we don't know exactly what she overdosed on. But um, that in her Instagram post on August 5th, um, she she wrote about her journey with addiction and um, and thanks to her family, her team, and the staff at Cedars-Sinai um, who have helped her and um, and gotten her safe. 
So this is a a very interesting way because when Amy Winehouse came out with her song Rehab, which was a couple of years, I think, before she finally uh, succumbed to the disease of addiction, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of backlash, and a lot of the commentary around her and particularly that song was all the people who didn't want to be in rehab and thought this was crazy and were happy to still be using were celebrating it. Those that were in recovery were very disturbed by her making light of her disease and her making light of um, her treatment and the, the way in which um, she was trying to not address it, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then what a what a rocking experience when she then died right. from a heroin overdose and and um, suddenly that song just took on a, a whole different meaning right in, in a real tragic sort of way <clears throat> the part of of Demi's letter that I found really interesting was was she ends it with um, um, I will never forget and I look forward to a day when I can come out on the other side and, and that's such the the addict and alcoholics fantasy that there's going to be some day when I'm cured Mm -hmm. and the alcoholic brain that I've worked with and that I'm pretty familiar with (laughs) cured means I can go drink and use like regular folk not a problem anymore cured does not mean abstinence and abstinence is a way of being able to live life and to be able to live a very long productive healthy wonderful and enjoyable life but it's not cured um, and and I so I think that that gets into the mix of all of this that the idea that I would just want to be normal um, they really have to change the idea that normal doesn't mean with some substance in my system and it's always an interesting conversation to have uh, particularly with young people but older adults as well the idea that they think that everybody in the world is drinking and using drugs. And drinking and using drugs to the extent that they were. And that that is somehow normal and that everybody else has been able to manage that without serious consequences and they just haven't been. And so if I can get back to normal, that's what they think normal is. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that most people don't go home and drink every day. Most people aren't smoking pot every day. Most people aren't injecting heroin. Most people have never even seen heroin. Right. Or cocaine. Right. Or even marijuana. Um, although the, those people are getting harder and harder to find these days. But but the idea that their idea of normal is, mm-hmm. I can go out and drink every day, I can go out and use every day and be fine. And well, that's and not especially when it comes to trying to to rebuild a social life right because they're they really truly believe that in order to have a normal social life you have to be able to go out and have a drink mm-hmm. um, how do you go on a first date if you don't have a drink is right. a true belief that they have to learn how to walk through um, and I've seen people with long-term recovery that have had really solid recovery lives but they find themselves getting interested in somebody outside of the rooms of recovery and they don't know how to have that conversation. Right. Because it's like suddenly they're having to um, 
break break that taboo and tell some really bad news is how they they look at it <laughs> so in the sense you know this new generation that's being a bit more open about it might be helping that aspect mm-hmm. of it in the in the long run it might be moving it towards a more open sense of recovery and and in in being able to do that and to be able to have a conversation that isn't either um, the punchline to a joke mm-hmm. or the sad story about somebody who just died but to talk about what is what is normal whatever normal is and i have this little plaque in my office that says normal is a setting on the dryer so who knows what normal is i certainly don't but the idea that um, people have to be educated about their disease but they also have to be educated about how most people experience drugs and alcohol and how most people use them and how most people are able but they're not going to be able to be that normal either in the sense that they're going to have to find a way to manage all of their situations all of their opportunities and their celebrations and their tragedies without the use of a substance Mm -hmm. or a behavior that's addictive so they'll never be normal no matter how you define it because um, they're they're going to need to manage this disease very carefully or relapse like for this young lady is very much um, a real possibility yeah and that's really the accepting the acceptance piece that they just have to learn how to manage this disease on a daily basis when the when the story first came out and we don't know if that this aspect of it is true but one of the stories was that they had revived her with naloxone mm-hmm. and that she was in the hospital and that she was there a lot longer than expected um, because of complications for it and so we also wanted to talk a little bit about um, um, going back to talking about naloxone and how important it is um, as a life-saving um, option out there so exactly. coming away from Demi's story and jumping over to that, since we don't know if it's true for her, but we do know some, some stuff about this. It's true for a lot of people. So um, lots of changes have happened over the last few years. Now, back in the olden days, when I was in medical school and doing my residency and working a lot in hospitals, we had a drug called Narcan. And Narcan was generally found in the emergency room. And it was a drug that would be injected if someone had overdosed on opioids. So Narcan was the brand name. Naloxone is actually the generic name or the um, the name of the actual contents of the syringe. So uh, it was given by injection, and occasionally you would see it used, but it was pretty rare, and it was not something that was really talked about. Now, more recently, this has come out as we need to have this available for people, and it used to have to be prescribed by a doctor's prescription. So if I was putting a patient on an opioid medication for managing their pain or putting someone on uh, a buprenorphine product for medication-assisted recovery, we would give them a prescription for uh, naloxone. 
and that would be for their protection and for their families to understand and know how to use. Since then, we have more commercially uh, commercially available products that are available now in many states, Georgia being one of them, without a doctor's prescription. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the life-saving effects of naloxone. Please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and with me today from the Atlanta Healing Center is David Donaldson. And today we're using the story um, that has um, been made available in the news um, about uh, Demi Levito and her struggles with recovery. And one of the early releases of information about her overdose indicated that she was rescued by naloxone. So we've since stated that we don't know whether that is a true statement or not, but be that as it may, naloxone has been a very valuable, life-saving medication that in the state of Georgia now and in many other states, it is available without a doctor's prescription. You can walk into any pharmacy in the state of Georgia and request uh, naloxone. It comes in a variety of different formats, some of which are more uh, easy to use, some of which are more appealing to use. 
all of them contain the medication naloxone, and it is, um, again, very life-saving. We've talked about it on this show before, and many of you may have naloxone that you've obtained for your family, for yourself, you might want to look at the expiration dates because we're coming on um, a year and a half, almost two years since it was first made available in Georgia. So you want to make sure that what you have is certainly uh, within the expiration date. That being said, after having spoken with some pharmacists, they assure me you should go ahead and use it anyway, that some is better than nothing, and that certainly if you are worried that someone has overdosed, you should absolutely give it, even if you don't know, if you come upon someone who is unconscious, even if you don't know the reason, it's not going to hurt them if they're unconscious because their blood sugar is too low or because they've had a heart attack, it's not going to create more of a problem. But if by some chance they have overdosed, it may very much save their life. The um, the other reason to have it that really struck me, one, when you had um, a, a guest from the DEA, was to protect children. Yes. They were, they were emphasizing how if you are prescribed an opiate legitimately for, um, for pain management or anything, that it is, it is always a possibility that the children are going to get into the medications and they're going to risk overdose. And so having it there to protect children is crucial. The other part that really struck me was that having the awareness of exactly how to use it, that, you know, the, the some of them are very clear. They You push, you pull a tab, and it just has a voice that tells you how to manage it. Um, but the big emphasis is to, whether it's a shot form or the nasal form or whatever, is to give it and immediately call 911 um, because it's it's not going to keep somebody out of deta- out of withdrawal for a long time. Correct. I think about 15 minutes is the number they usually throw out there, but if you ha- they they tend to recommend that you have two doses there. Correct. Most of the packs I think come with two doses, and usually if you call 911, they'll tell you go ahead and give that second dose right away. Absolutely, and that is really important information for people to know. You may be able to pull someone completely out of an overdose and bring them back to life, literally, but this medication has a very short half-life, meaning it gets metabolized pretty quickly. And if you don't get that second dose, or if the paramedics don't arrive in time, uh, the person may slip back into a coma state and they may uh, go back into overdose and die. So it's really important that you call 911, that you do everything you can to help maintain this person. Before we talk about the different types and why one might be preferred over another for different situations, it's also really important to know that if you are sure that this person has overdosed, and let's say you don't have naloxone, or you've given a dose and they've responded partially but help has not yet arrived, you have to do mouth-to-mouth or it's recommended that you do mouth-to-mouth. Now, CPR has changed. Um, In the olden days, you used to do 
four or five compressions and then give a breath and then compressions pushing on the on the person's chest and then giving them a breath in the mouth now the uh, training is that you just do compressions and that you sing either to yourself or literally out loud staying alive staying alive that is the rhythm that you have to give the compressions to unless it's to a baby and then it's much more quick uh, or much more rapid but that's because the person's heart has stopped and those compressions are actually helping the heart keep pumping the blood and every time you push on the chest you're forcing all the blood out of the heart into the body then it comes back into the heart and then you're pushing it back out again so that's why they're saying do the compressions but with an opioid overdose it's not a heart attack their heart will eventually stop beating but because they've stopped breathing. The problem with the opioid overdose, good heavens, today I'm having trouble with my tongue. The problem with an opioid overdose is that the person has stopped breathing. This is the effect of the opioids on the brain, in the brain stem, and they just slow down breathing. Most of us breathe 12 to 16 times a minute, and you'll see people when they're going into an opiate overdose, they start breathing five or six times a minute, and then they begin to just not breathe at all. And eventually their heart stops. So it's getting the oxygen because their brain is no longer signaling to their lungs that they need to breathe. So it still might be real useful for you to understand how to do the breaths, how to tilt the chin back, make sure that the mouth is clear, and to to sing "Staying Alive" and giving the compre- or um, giving the breaths every five seconds. So, in in actuality, if you're going to set up a survival kit to help just in case you have a loved one or you're in a situation where you're going to need to use naloxone, you really ought to go ahead and get um, a mask and a... a Ambu bag. Ambu bag so that you can be getting the right amount of oxygen in there during this whole time. And that, once upon a time, was even a controversial thing to say that you're enabling because you're going ahead and and having the rescue devices. I remember when the cocaine... um, um, crisis was huge in the late 80s and the 90s and this one woman was talking about how she enabled because she went out and learned CPR and they actually bought a home um, defibrillator mm-hmm. to to help just in case their loved one was in a cocaine um, right, induced because heart cocaine attack. Ha- gives you a heart attack, yes. <laughs> um, and so we talk about enabling the disease to survive or enabling the person to survive and every now and then you have to take steps to enable the person um, to, to see another day. And certainly no one can get treatment if they are no longer with us. So we, we want to certainly provide uh, this life-saving medication if, if at all possible. Just like with other medications, we have seen some of the naloxone delivery systems escalate exponentially in cost. So there's one that you um, referenced uh, a few moments ago, David, where you would uh, you remove this tab and the little auto injector. It's a, a little box about the size of a pack of cards, 
and it talks you through it. It tells you what to do, and it tells you how long to leave the needles in and this gives you an injection you can go through your clothes through your pants through your jeans the recommendation is in the outer thigh even for children you can use this on children you can use it on animals but the outer thigh is the recommended place and you hold it against the thigh you push down on it the needles come out inject the medication the little box tells you hold it for five seconds it counts it down for you and then tells you to release and then the needles are retracted back into the box so there's no contamination there's no risk that you're going to get a needle stick or that someone's going to um, have a problem with uh, with the needles so this um, is a really great product many people felt very comfortable with it once the opioid epidemic really took off and there was some changes in the company that medication went from a very reasonable over the counter price to a very expensive medication that many people can't afford so in the state of georgia and in other states they've allowed some non-manufactured options where the pharmacist will compound or fix you with a a needle that you would inject it again go through the clothes even if it's a syringe don't take time to undress them don't use the arm use the thigh and that's the recommended uh, place for injecting there's also a brand name uh, injector that you use in the nose and there are um, ones that compounding pharmacists can make that you can use in the nose this seems to be much more attractive to the person who's having to give the dose of naloxone because somehow the idea of sticking a needle in somebody else and jamming it in their thigh seems a bit aggressive those of us in healthcare, not so much but for um, most uh, lay people they're not too excited about having to give somebody else a shot and they don't quite know how to do it even if the pharmacist has given them a pretty good demonstration so they prefer the um, the naloxone to be delivered through the nose so this contains a syringe but on the tip of the syringe instead of being a needle it looks like a little um, funnel turned upside down and you push it up inside the nose. It's not a big funnel, by the way. It's a very small fit inside um, most people's Little, uh, nostrils. foam, neoprene kind of mm-hmm. soft Yes, funnel. soft. Not going to hurt anybody. There's no needle attached to this. It is just this delivery system going through this little um, foam that blocks the nostril so it's not going to come out. You, in, you push on the plunger and it delivers the dose of naloxone up the nose and that is absorbed through the mucous membranes in your nose. As many of you may know, uh, your nasal passages are often a favorite delivery system, actually, by a number of our patients with the disease of addiction. And by that, we usually mean they're snorting their drugs. But in this case, their delivery system, which helps reverse the opioid overdose, is all through, also through the mucous membranes in their nose. There are some problems with this, and the original doses that were sent out were only 2 milligrams, where the injectables were 4 milligrams. 
that two milligrams is generally enough if it's a regular opioid. If it is fentanyl, then we have a problem. It may not be a high enough dose. So generally, the advice is if you've got a two milligram nasal injector, that you give the second dose right away because it may not be enough. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about ways in which you can have some redemption from this disease of addiction. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today, David Donaldson and I have been talking a little bit about um, the uh, course of recovery and have been using the example of um, Miss Demi Lovato and her, her recent relapse that she publicly announced and apologized for, which was an interesting way that she did it in a song that she um, produced, a single that was released in June. She had an overdose in July, and we were talking in our last segment about naloxone, which has been a, it literally is a life-saving drug. This is how you reverse an opioid overdose. And the person needs to be on this medication. 
to help them get through the overdose and to help them until whatever substance they have taken is clearing their system enough so that it is not depressing their respiratory rate. We were talking about the different forms of naloxone, and while the um, nasal injector seems to be less scary to a lot of family members and to patients, um, the auto-injector that uh, that we talked about, while the price has gone up a lot, David, you made a really good point that I think our listeners need to hear. I, um, I, I'm fairly certain that if you are prescribed an opiate for pain management, for pain treatment, for detox, mm-hmm. um, for addiction treatment, that most insurance companies will also cover a prescription for that injector. Um, the company is Invisio, I believe. Evzio. Um, and and so they have talked with with most insurance companies, and they've worked out um, arrangements so that if you are prescribed an opiate, a prescription for this will also be covered um, because it's you know life and death if right. someone's overdosing, and in particular, um, an accidental overdose or an overdose of a child or a pet, it will save any of them or can save any of them. And this is um, this is really important because obviously the person who is either taking prescription pain medication um, or the one who may be misusing opioids or addicted to heroin, they're not going to be the ones that are going to to be giving themselves this dose. Um, so family members, the loved ones, uh, folks around them, concerned citizens should be familiar with how to use the medication where it's stored and that sort of thing. So the the other question I thought I'd throw out there, um, we hadn't actually talked about this, but it's just come to my mind. Um, a lot of people are prescribed the medication naltrexone. Correct. Either as a, a daily um, aid to help them not drink or use um, opiates mm-hmm. or in a, a month-long formulation that they take as a shot. But the naltrexone itself, is it, I'm noticing it's even coming out in smaller doses in a lot of different types of medications. Um if somebody's in an overdose, is this the same medication? Can they just kind of crush it and and put it under their tongue? Or? Well, um, yes and maybe. Um, yes, this is the same medication. This is a long-acting form of it. It's not an immediate release. It's a more timed release. Even the, the tablet that you take orally each day lasts for 24 hours. And so... There was some hope that if you could crush it up and get the person to swallow it or shove it up their nose or, or whatever, that um, and taking the tablets, because they are very inexpensive, I think a 30-day supply, taking one a day for 30 days, costs less than $30. So it's a relatively inexpensive medication. But the problem is is that when someone is unconscious, it is very dangerous to try and get them to swallow something because they're unconscious and mm-hmm. you may actually make the situation worse. Um, a person who is using the nasal delivery system for their drug use, they actively have to snort it up their nose. They have to <laughs> to be um, conscious and aware of how they are using negative pressure to get the 
drug or the substance up inside their nose to be absorbed through the mucous membranes. It's You can't do that very well with a crushed pill or a powder when someone's unconscious. But that's a really good question. And yes, they are basically the same thing. One is just a, an immediate release and very short half-life, gets in real quick, gets out real quick. The other is there to be um, a protection all day. But you're right. It is also being released with another number. Look at me today. With a number of other medications. Uh, there is a, uh, a medication that's being used to help with weight loss. That is a combination of the medication Wellbutrin and it has a little naltrexone in it. And so this particular medication is being prescribed as a weight loss aid. There are other weight loss clinics and other organizations that use smaller doses than we would use for someone who is addicted to opioids or someone who is um, using alcohol, and we were using the, the um, naltrexone to help with that. And they use it for, again, for weight loss and to, uh, to act as a craving control for people who are craving foods, particularly sugar. I've actually used this for a couple of patients who are binge eaters or who have um, bulimia as a way to help them control the urge to binge. And, again, we're using it at a smaller dose than we use for, for opioids or alcohol. But it, so far, it has seemed to be pretty successful. That's a very small number, folks, and that is not... <laughs> um, that is certainly an off-label use, but uh, we're seeing some promise with this medication. Off-label use for use with um, eating, eating disorders, disorder. with right. people with bulimia. Mm-hmm. But the the idea is that it's blocking the release of dopamine. Correct. Which and is the reward that they're getting when they are eating sugar. Right. Or doing alcohol or doing mm-hmm. opiates. So, so there is a subset of people with the disease of addiction for whom dopamine is also... Um, is released and also there is a natural opioid released like an endorphin or an enkephalin and this particular subset of alcoholics for example are the group that drink to take a good time and make it a great time they are the ones that become the life of the party that um, get a lot of euphoria with it they tend to be people who started drinking a little earlier they tend to be people who are risk takers, who like to drive fast and and do risky things. Those particular people find um, that there is these natural opioids that are also released. So when you block that opioid receptor with the naltrexone, that um, takes away a big part of the buzz for that person. And so they no longer want to drink alcohol. Or if they drink it, they're not getting high and they're not getting the buzz they're used to so they just sort of lose interest is the theory um, the same with uh, with some people with sugar and um, other foods they oh, the opiate receptor and the natural are indwelling opioids are endorphins actually are part of what makes them feel mm-hmm. um, the high and the and the um, the mood change that they're looking for when they consume sugar. 
so it blocks that so it stops being as rewarding so people don't want to do it right and so the problem for those people is they don't tend to want to take the medicine right if they have to make the choice on a daily basis to take that medicine Mm -hmm. versus i'm going to go out and get some dopamine right they they have a hard time with it the um the sort of good news is that it stays in their system for a couple of days so they have to really plan it but to your point david that's why the injectable the long acting form the one that lasts for 28 days um is preferred by some people because it takes away that option to change their dose so to speak or to not take their medication in preparation for a binge or for a relapse so the lower dose that you're seeing in the medication for weight loss yes does that have as much of a blocker of the not as much dopamine release no it does not block it nearly as much um but it for people that don't necessarily have the disease of addiction it's more than enough to help them not get the satisfaction from eating and that um that high that they might get from sugar in particular so it's really helpful there are also some people uh, for whom it makes them sick to their stomach Mm -hmm. and so some of the theory behind the weight loss is they don't feel very good so they're not really interested in eating i don't know how much that is true but that is um that is one of the side effects that a lot of people who don't have addiction complain of with this medication that's actually a side effect that we see with a lot of people who do have an addiction um so we sometimes have to lower the dose for them to be able to do that comfortably so if you're interested in learning more about um, naloxone, if you're interested in getting a prescription, certainly you can check our website at atlantahealingcenter.com. But you can also talk to your local pharmacy or to your prescribing doctor. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week on Detailing Addiction. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.